Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode four of Library Access, a Keyforge podcast. Uh, I'm Nick, and I'm here with Alex and Steven again. Um, I have a couple quick side announcements for the Keyforge.com before we begin. Uh, the forum is now up and running, but it's awfully quiet. Uh, you can get to it at the Keyforge.com slash forums, or you can go to the Keyforge.com and just click the forum link. Uh, please go there and chat it up. You know, it, it takes one person to get all the rest of them there, so do your part. Um, we posted a new article uh, yesterday. It is from a new series. It's called Mobius Scroll, and it covers the Four Horsemen. It's a pretty good read if you're curious kind of what's behind the hype of the Horsemen and if it's all justified. Um, we also have a new podcast produced by thekeyforge.com. It's called Archon Report. Uh, you can find it on YouTube, on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash thekeyforge, or on Spotify, Anchor, Apple Podcasts, all that stuff. Uh, it's basically just a, a really short burst of news. Now, the goal is not necessarily to make it a weekly show, uh, but to have one that comes out when there's relevant news. So if you haven't checked that out, go ahead and check it out. Um, last but not least, our Patreon is live, and we've already got a handful of patrons. So thank you guys so much for contributing. Uh, it's super nice to see kind of a, a way to measure the the interest, and it, it definitely gives us incentive to keep pushing as hard as we're pushing. Uh, especially in the new year. Uh, if you'd like to show your support, you can throw money at our faces at patreon.com slash thekeyforge. Uh, we also hosted an event on Tuesday of this week um, in our Discord group. You can actually get to that Discord by going to keyforgediscord.com. You can also go to thekeyforge.com and click Discord, but that one's way more handy. Uh, we ran a sealed tournament. We randomly generated decks and assigned it to everybody. We had about 30 people show up. And it went super well. So congratulations to Matt, who came in first place and won a custom-built wooden deck box. Uh, We'll host uh, another event on Tuesday. We're not sure if it'll be Archon format or sealed. That's kind of to be determined. Uh, It's free entry, no matter what. You can play on Crucible. And we'll be offering a pretty cool uh, yet-to-be-announced prize. Um, Make sure to join our Discord if you haven't already. Like I said, you can get to it real fast by going to keyforgediscord.com. So I have a question. Uh, yesterday, I was sorting through all my Keyforge stuff, and I noticed that I have too many decks. And I've kind of come up with a system to deal with my addiction to buying decks. But I was curious, what do you what do you guys do with you know too many decks? How do you handle owning more than a playable amount of decks? Buy more decks. Oh, <laughs> I mean, look, like the, the game is great. I want to show my support. I'll throw throw money at our faces on Patreon. I'll throw money back at Fantasy Flight Space. Um, no, the the actual answer is I have them all like separate out into a box, mm-hmm. and I have them specifically like put in a kind of order. Um. But for the most part, I will usually play one or two decks a night, either on Crucible or I'll do them at local uh, game stores. Uh, but for the most part, I try and try my best to rotate them around. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't always seem to work. There's definitely a couple of favorite decks that I have that I they're always the go-to. Like if I'm starting to get salty, I'll be like, all right, nah, take it out, put the new deck down, play one of my good decks, kind of like refresh myself. Um, right. Because I definitely have some bad decks. How many decks do you have? I am at 36 right now. Okay, so you have more than me. Um, so I guess my question's 
even even like more valid for you or my, my dilemma is even more valid for you do you track your wins and losses with them uh, not on the official uh i just got the app updated today so i'm gonna start to like a fresh clean start with all my decks um mm-hmm. that's not exactly the best because some of my decks i've played a lot with so and some of the decks i've played a couple of nights so the ones i've played more with will obviously probably have a higher win rate but yeah uh, it's i'm gonna be starting doing that but so far the only one that i've really kept is the two the two or three decks that i use as often as i do like for tournaments those i keep track of but for the most part the rest of the decks are fun decks i'll throw them a couple friends when they want to play uh I, I make sure to have a good variety so i can be like well here's like a quick rundown of what all the houses are what would you like um i don't have one of every single combination but i'm getting close Okay. Um, I do. I, I don't use the app because when I had started, the app was kind of glitchy and I, I couldn't like log into it reliably. So I made a spreadsheet, which is actually proven to be super handy. Um, I put the name of it, uh, the, you know, the, the different houses in it. And I, uh, have a, like a games played column, a win loss. Um, and then I have one set up for like deck scores and stuff that I haven't plugged in yet. But it's it's proven pretty handy to be able to actually look at you know the amount of games I've played with it and you know the win loss ratio. I also have like a win percentage, but it's proven to be super tricky and it's almost like sucked some of the fun out of it for me when I when I'm like strictly playing to build up the spreadsheet because my goal right now is to figure out you know 20 decks I don't like. I have I have 29 decks, so I want to figure out which decks I don't like and I want to get rid of them. I want to give them away or sell them or whatever. And then I want to have 10 that I can really like learn the heck out of and figure out which ones are good. So when competitive play comes around, I'll know which one to actually bring, but it's, it's surprisingly difficult and it doesn't help that Keyforge takes so long to play. Uh, you know, it, it might on crucible, it might take me 45 minutes or so to get through one game. And that's just with one deck out of 29 and to like get any sort of, reliable answer out of that spreadsheet as to what's good and bad. I have to play them like four or five times each. And I, you know, I won't sit down and do the math on it cause it'll blow my mind, but that's going to take a long time to do. So that's, that's kind of how I'm handling having so, so many decks and I'm trying to work through them, but it's easier, easier said than done, but it is fun to be able to play like almost a form of sealed. You know, I have my good deck. Um, I have like just one that I think is really good. And if I go play in person and, you know, somebody there's just opening up a deck of their own, I'll pull one out that I've only played on Crucible and sleeve it up. And, you know, if I don't look at the notes I have on my spreadsheet, I have no idea what's in it. Like, I'm still going into it pretty blind. So that, that's been fun to still, like, discovering my stuff. But uh, what about you, Alex? I'm way behind on you guys on deck acquisition. I'm at 10 right now, and that already feels like way too many for me in that uh, if I'm playing on the Crucible or I was playing with a friend the other day uh, just at a local uh, local tavern, um, I didn't know what to pick. Like, I literally just sort of looked at them and just went, uh, uh, uh this one. And th- there's actually a little bit of fun involved in that for me, just in terms of, you know, uh, really adding to the, the the randomness that I think is such an appealing part of Keyforge. But I do see a point in the near future where I'm probably going to have to cull some decks out and either give them to friends to play with or keep them in reserve for if I ever get to play in that bring your worst format or anything else like that, because there is so much to be gained from playing your more this word again we used it so many times last week competitive decks over and over and over to really learn them i have the very first deck that i ever opened up recently 
uh, just suddenly turn into a beast because I finally figured out how to play it properly. And now my win ratio with it's off the charts uh, for me anyway. And I'm not very good at key forward. So, you know, if I get 75% win rate, I feel like I'm, I'm champion of the world. But, uh, you know, it's hard to feel like I'm spending time well, just like randomly choosing decks when I can see the results of having spent a little bit of time learning one or two decks. And so I almost wonder, you know, maybe having a smaller number might be more beneficial to my enjoyment of the game in the long run, leaving aside, you know, wacky formats and choose a deck at random or let your opponent choose one of your decks from, you know, a deck list you present them or some other format of that ilk. Variety is the spice of life, my friend. You gotta, you gotta get one of every kind. You gotta get one of every single house combination. You gotta play with everything. Like it, just playing one or two, that that's gonna get boring. Like that's 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 the fun for me in KeyForge is that there's so much variety, and the fact that I can't change my deck out means I'm having to learn these new things and having a different experience with every deck. I don't know it. I, I don't see the problem of having too many decks. I have I, I see the problem of not having one of every deck. Like if I if I could have like forty thousand decks, you know, I'd I'd be happy. My wallet will not be, but I'll be happy. <laughs> Meet the man who spent half a million dollars on Keyforge. <laughs> you mentioned uh like having a keeping a bad deck around for for the form, you know, for the formats where that's applicable, you bring a bad deck and your opponent's forced to play it. Uh, are there any other benefits to owning or keeping around bad decks, or is that is the possibility of that, you know, potentially unofficial format? Um, you know, is it is it worth keeping those bad decks in your box for those cases, or is it better to try to pawn them off on somebody? Or you know, what what would you do with a bad deck? I guess. I feel like playing my worst decks. Um, for one thing, you know, the game is still young enough and I'm still inexperienced enough at the game that it took me a while to really suss out, you know, whether a deck was good or bad. And it's not always losing every time that makes it bad, since I have some decks that I think are on paper, if I could pilot them better, would probably be, you know, a a more winning deck. But uh, there's certainly something you learn about the game from playing bad decks, and it can teach you lessons that, you know, I could say to you, you know, uh a lesson about Keyforge or, you know, give you sort of a good general strategy, but sometimes really understanding the value of, you know, denial or the value of forcing your opponent to choose between reaping or dealing with the board state or forcing your opponent into a certain direction. Sometimes playing with a bad deck and being the one on the receiving end of, you know, a a beating is really the, you know, the lesson that you can learn from having a bad deck and playing with it a little bit. Also, I put it out there that uh, when I was teaching a friend to play uh, recently, uh, having a bad deck so that he didn't just get stomped every single time that he was trying to learn the game uh, was actually kind of useful because I feel like he might have gotten a little bit frustrated uh, feeling like uh, he was taking the the one deck that he had and running it up against the decks that I know how to pilot and, you know, have relatively decent time uh, playing with. So, you know, being able to deploy a bad deck for him to really work against, you know, that was that was useful. It helped uh, help make the game a little bit more fun, sort of like uh, the handicap that we envision with chains, but a little bit more natural. That's a good point, because I've considered keeping a bad deck around, you know, as like an option for, you know, give give your friend a deck, you know, get him started in Keyforge, but maybe not giving them the deck, but you using that bad deck and letting them pilot your good deck and, you know, just kind of almost guaranteeing them a win. That's a that's a decent strategy to get somebody interested, not put them off immediately, and you know it it 
gives you a reason to keep that deck around. Um, also, you know, for, I, I don't know, I, what you said is certainly not wrong. You know, there, there's something to be said about playing a bad deck and like learning its intricacies and trying, trying it out as best as possible. But you know, I'm what I've learned so far and I, I can't wait to get like a lot of data so I can like really boil it down and squeeze it all out and like see what I can, you know, get from it. But I have some decks that are just bad that I don't think it's a piloting issue. You know, I have, I have some decks that like win, lose an overwhelming amount and have a couple wins to them. And then I have decks that have just never won once. And I, you know, I can tell from my first hand that they're, you know, every single time that it's just, it's, it's not a great combination of cards. You know, there's just no synergy, no cards playing with each other. So I think, I think there's different stages of bad decks. There's, you know, there's great decks, there's okay decks, there's bad decks, and then there's like broken, impossible decks that are, you know, maybe more suited for arts and crafts projects or, you know, or maybe, you know, a format where you bring your worst deck, uh, if that's a thing that takes off. But that was a, that was an interesting point about you keeping a bad deck around for you to play and letting somebody else play, uh, you know, your good deck and letting them kind of stomp you in favor of teaching them the game and capturing their interest. I'm telling you right now, I'm into this idea of bring two decks, your best deck and your worst deck, and your opponent has to play you, you know, with with your worst deck against his worst deck. I like that idea a lot. Yeah, reversal seems like a good format. If you if you do something like that, then you're really relying on them to be honest with their worst deck. Or do you, you do play? I mean, explain explain that scenario that you just mentioned. All right. Uh, you basically, uh, in, I, I'm not good at, at uh, theorizing formats. There's much people who are much better than I am, but I like the idea of I bring a bad deck and you bring a bad deck, and then we have to play each other with each other's bad decks. So it suddenly becomes a contest of who had the worst deck that was so hard to pilot and so crappy and had so little synergy that even a good player couldn't, you know, make it work. And there's then create some value and hopefully some fun gameplay elements out of that. Okay. Yeah, that was my mistake. I thought you were suggesting that each person bring their worst deck and then they play those decks like they pilot their own decks. But then you'd, re- you'd be relying on them to actually have brought their worst deck. But I, I see what you're saying. If I only own one deck and that's a double horseman deck, it's my worst deck, guys. I don't know what you guys are talking about. Well, in, in Alex's scenario, you're about to play against your double horseman deck, so... Good luck. Uh, never mind. <laughs> no, no, I, I've got an awful deck, though. Like, I mean, this thing is... The logos in it is good. The Sanctum and the Untamed are, is awful. And if anyone wants to look at this deck, it's uh, Trias A. Skitterex, the 3.14159. And I'll toss you the name of that so you can put it in the description if someone else wants to see this horrible thing. Um, it's got all the good logos cards though. It's got a wild wormhole, two libraries of Babel, uh, a Skippy Time Hog, and then go down to the like Sanctum, and there's Epic Quest with one knight and like Doorstep to Heaven, which is a card I've never been able to get off correctly. Uh, it's always just been gain an amber, lose an amber for me. Um, and then the Untamed is a couple of cooperative huntings, a troop call with one single Niffleape. And I think there is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine creatures in the entire deck. I'm looking at it right now. And it's just, 
it, like I I opened it up on stream when I was streaming the one night when do I was opening up my booster box and everyone in there was just like looking at me and they're like, "What is this absolute garbage that I just pulled?" And like I I think it's one of those decks where like if you bring it to even if you even bring it to a reversal deck, you're you're basically being a terrible person because you're like, here's this unpilotable jank that the algorithm spit out for me. And I mean, I keep it around because I'm sure I'm sure I will get some use out of it where I, you know, sit down and play some games in that same way. where like, all right, let's just bring out our worst decks and let's see how we can pilot. But like I look at this deck and I'm like, I'm like pawing through it right now. And Virtuous Work and Wild Wormhole are the only two cards that I'm like, these cards will work 100% of the time in this deck. Everything else is, oh yeah, I can draw a card. The rest of my deck's bad. I don't want to draw it. <laughs> like, it makes me sad. We had kind of an extensive conversation about this last week. Like the, you know, what makes a deck good? What makes a deck bad? And one thing that I kind of wish, I was listening back to the podcast uh, that I wish I had brought up was the, a deck that has so few creatures that, you know, you have a run a real chance of getting nothing on the board on your first two or three turns. And I have one deck like that and it is brutal to pilot. Like, I don't think creatures are the be all end all, but I do think that there's something to having, you know, a handful of situational cards that you can't do a thing with. And there are decks out there that certainly fall into that uh, algorithmic trap. Yeah. Epic quest seems to be the, uh, the trap card I've I've found for a lot of decks. They're like, yeah, Epic Quest. This card's real good. It gets me a free key. Oh, I've got like one or two knights to synergize with it. Oh, I have to hold an entire hand full of Sanctum cards just to get a benefit out of it. Eh, no, I'm good. Like I've seen some decks that have you know tons of knights, and Epic Quest will fire every time. And then, like I said, with my deck here, like Epic Quest will fire uh, never. <laughs> like. I don't know. There, there's definitely some trap cards that look real good on paper that just basically, unless you get the cards from the algorithm, that card is just a complete dead draw every time. Right. I have a topic that kind of loosely ties into this. Um, not quite. Um, I was curious if you guys have encountered any either band decks or oddities. And I guess oddities as in decks that are just don't work together, but more so in imperfections and you know things like that. You know, there's the decks with the the goofy names or um i think one popped up i've only seen one of that had a like a giant pink x across every single card like it was printed on it but it had been packaged and sent off and all that uh so i don't know if you guys didn't encounter anything cool um i personally had opened a i think i have two decks that are like that that i'm not sure there's a there's an official term for it and i think i'll use the wrong one it's not a miscut it's a misprint where the print was like shifted on the sheet. So there's, um, the cards don't bleed over from one to another, but there's a, a good like several centimeter gap on each side of a bunch of the cards that are white and don't have any ink on them and everything's shifted way over. Like the left border is almost non-existent. Um, and I think that's cool. Um, I also have, um, I have kind of an interesting oddity. Uh, I pulled a horseman deck. Uh, a couple weeks ago and I've been playing on Crucible and it's actually pretty consistently good. So I sleeved it up on uh, yesterday, actually last night. And I noticed that the the identity card is, I, I didn't inspect it too much. It's either really like frayed, like if you took your fingernail and kind of scratched along the top, you know, like if you were playing cards without sleeves on them, uh, that or it's a printing error at the top. I didn't go like finger it and see what it felt like, but that was kind of, 
interesting. I thought like, oh man, what are the chances that like my good horseman deck is kind of, you know, screwed up and like I feel like, you know, hurts its resale value if I would choose to resell it because someone will think, oh man, you, you know, you stuck that thing in your pocket. When in reality, like, no, I pulled it right out of the plastic and I, yeah, it didn't have a chance to get messed up. But I have that. And then I've, I've noticed on a couple cards, there'll be interesting spots of like a, I just like a lack of ink tiny little you know ballpoint pen size dots maybe two two or three ballpoint pen size um in in areas on cards that you know look like they were worn off but they didn't have time to get worn uh, which those don't bother me um not even from a resale value you know if i if i were buying a deck like keyforge is interesting in that like nobody's collecting a single card you know that it's not like magic or Yu-Gi-Oh where there's just these crazy cards that are super rare that you just can't get your hands on and if you get them you know if you get your black lotus you put it in six different sleeves and in a box and a safe and all that um so there's not really a a like a collectible aspect to keyforge for the sake of i mean that might not be true it's really too hard to tell as it is right now there's no co- super collectible card it it might be possible that certain decks if kept in pristine condition are you know become way more valuable later down the road um as prints stop being made for certain cards or houses or whatever but as it is right now i don't know it it just doesn't really bother me even if i were buying a deck if if there were some like printed imperfections you know i obviously don't want somebody who spilled water on a deck or scratched it or whatever but if he said you know look man i opened it up and you know if he said i opened it up and the identity card was bent i i almost wouldn't care because like that was out of your hands like it's not gonna disrupt the game um that's just me have you guys encountered any any band decks or oddities or anything like that? No. <laughs> nope. Um, that I maybe in my local scene there might be some, but they haven't either shown them to me or brought them out. Um, most of them I see that are on the Facebook group or just in by passing. Um, mm-hmm. I know one of the not local to me players, but they travel a lot. Um, in their in their local Facebook group, they're talking about another one of those Red X decks that that as looks like uh, it looks like it's like the first print that they like tested and like something's wrong with it, so they like try to X them out and push them through. Interesting. I wonder if I wonder if a deck with that uh, that X on it has like a duplicate. Might also be if it had you know if it has like a, a brother or sister deck with the exact same name and like actually made it to print. That would I'd like to get my hand on that. Uh, that kind of I don't really care about band deck names like I don't think they're going to be super valuable um even if you know I think they'll have value especially because that algorithm is not going to spit those bad names out anymore um but like at best you're looking at like your $10 deck is worth $20 it's like having a you know to compare it to something silly like Pokemon if you have that first generation uh Machamp uh that came with one of the starter decks it came in like a a, a unique it, it came in a like a like a rapper, I guess. Um, I was watching this video on YouTube where these people, he said, you know, these people come to the store and they expect a bunch of money for these these cards. He was like, if you have this card, if you have this Mountchamp, everyone has it. Don't bring it. You know, it was worth $2 when it came out. It's worth $3 now. So I think that's how, you know, those bad name decks will be. You know, you bought that deck for $10. It might be worth 20 in the future, maybe 30 if you're lucky. Like certainly not worth hanging on to for two years to sell. But I think the decks with like the giant X's on them or like really crazy miscuts or misprints or something like that, um, if they exist, I don't know to what extent they do. You know, the one I have is like the most extreme misalignment I've seen. Um, but I think decks like that might fetch fetch some money in the future, especially as, if and as Keyforge continues to 
grow. Yeah, I could definitely see that. Because, I mean, I know even a couple people who are buying... They are buying decks and breaking apart the decks because they want one of every card. They just want it for a collection. They want to put it in a, in a binder and call it a day. So I went to my store, um, like, last week. They've been out of stock for, like, a week and a half, where before they were getting, like, every Monday, every Friday, like, reliably. And I was just, I went in there one day, and I was just itching to buy something. So I was like, you know what? I have 30 decks, and that's kind of what spawned this spreadsheet. I want to figure out which of my decks are garbage, and I want to rip them apart, and I want to put them in a binder. And I, you know, I don't care what I do with it at that point. I don't care if I build a deck with it, or if I just look at it as a collection, or if I use it to, like, study cards and figure out combos. I just, I have it sitting right next to me right now. I bought, like, the perfect number of sleeves. It's ready to roll. Um... But I, I also have an interest in doing that just because I think it'd be cool. Um, you know, it's, it is a collection. And then it, it kind of paints it, paints, puts it into perspective. Um, you know, I have 30 decks, and I think I'm missing a chunk of cards, like a good chunk. I'm missing a good chunk. Yeah, so it's, it's kind of a, there is a collectible aspect. Like, I learned today about a card I didn't know existed. It's a discard, and there's three of them, uh, like Master of One, Master of Two, Master of Three. Oh, yeah, they're real neat. And I'm... I might be wrong about this, but I think it's it has a play effect and it's destroy any creature with that. With the number, yep. Power? Yep. Okay. It's actually, uh, I have a Master of Three. It was in the first deck I ever opened. I have never been able to use it effectively in any way, shape, or form, but it's uh, reap, destroy any creature uh, with a power of three exactly. So it doesn't work on ones, doesn't work on twos, threes only. Is that a rare card? It's supposedly the rarest card. Oh, okay. So is it rarer than... Is it rarer than one or two? You know, master of one and master of two? Sort of. The From what I understand, and this was from a article I like read, so don't 100% quote me on this. Um, it's the same thing with like how the horseman, when you get a horseman, you're guaranteed the other three. Um, when it spawns one of the master of spots in the algorithm, it then gives you like a one in three chance of getting one, two, or three. That's why... Um, I believe three is the rare, and then two and one are the specials out of the rarities. Um, I'd have to actually look and double check my... Like like I said, don't 100% quote me on that, but I'm like, I'm 95% positive that is how they said that... That's how they figured out the why they were special. Okay, that raises that raises an interesting question. Uh, do rare cards... I've seen this posted in the Facebook group, which is kind of what spawned it um do rare cards actually matter um do do rares impact victory do they are they worth additional money or is it just kind of a you know an interesting thing to look at but it it holds no real value and i ask because i see in the buy sell group a lot you know people say you know seven rares in this deck but it's you know that's as far as from what i've seen like a rare is not necessarily an indication of a good card you know like a some of the best cards i see are are littered you know among decks and they're they're more common than not um whereas the cards that pop up on my list as being you know exceptional for one reason or another rare um they don't seem to really impact play as much as i would think which kind of goes right along with what you just said about having a that master of three and i've never been able to actually trigger it like and just you know it's it's not a matter of play testing it. you can see just by what it is you know it it's a, a discard that destroys uh any creature with a power level of three like you can just think about it you know think about your games you play like that's not a common occurrence you know it might be nice to have once in a while if if you're lucky but like it's it's not a you know if this were to compare it to something stupid that people are getting mad about if this were a constructed game and you called that a rare card like it might not occur you know it might not pop up in a 
in packs frequently, but that rare title is not going to, you know, make it sought after at all. It's a, it's a pretty mundane, uninteresting, unuseful card. I feel like, uh, do you guys agree with that? I would a hundred percent agree with you as well. I guess I, from one perspective, um, I feel, and Stephen and I sort of had a little uh, conversation about this before we started recording, you know, so many of the rares are just very situational cards. Like they're interesting cards from a gameplay perspective. And I love seeing them pop up, especially in the people I'm playing against decks because they create weird situations. And for me, like Keyforge is all about weird stuff happening. I love it when a game is unpredictable and it's got huge swings or play effects that cause oddball things to happen. Things like Evasion Sigil, I love that because it makes everything uncertain, which I think is really one of the things that makes Keyforge a super fun game to play and helps level the playing field for for all players. But so often, I think we still approach it from that mindset of like rare means good and therefore, you know, a card or a deck with seven rare cards must be a great deck. Whereas, you know, we, we've talked about this, a horseman deck is not in and of itself just by having the horseman, despite that being a relatively rare thing to pull a great deck. Um, I do OK with my horseman deck, but it's because the Mars in it is really strong. The horsemen themselves don't tend to play a factor when I win with that deck. You got a Mars horseman deck? You looking to sell it? Because I'll uh, I'll take it. I don't know, man. <laughs> I kind of like playing with it. Uh, but uh, I also have another deck that has the Sting in it. Are you guys familiar with the Sting? Uh, remind us. Okay, so it's a rare Shadows card. Uh, skip your Forge a Key step. You get all the Ambers spent by your opponent when Forging Keys action sacrifice the Sting. That thing is so situational and so dangerous, but it is so fun to have out on the board because it creates such a feeling of uncertainty amongst people who've never played against it. And that's one of the things that I genuinely love. So I don't know that I would necessarily say that rare cards make your decks better or stronger. I'm sure there's a bunch of rare cards that probably do, but I would definitely say that a lot of the rare cards that I have in my decks make the game more fun to play. And I think that's super valuable. It's funny you bring this thing up because I actually think it's one of the better of the rares because uh, it's just, it's solid. Like the fact, if you can get out like early, before they forge their first key and get it down for two keys. I think it's one of the more solid of the rares. But I 100% agree that the rares in this game are more powerful effects, but also more situational effects. Like, I look at um, mm-hmm. Kefki Dragon, and that that thing is crazy. Absolutely bonkers. But it's, it's such a win-more card that I never want to see it in one of my decks. Like, it's, it is specifically only good when you are already winning the game or already being able to generate the amber that you need. Uh, and I, I feel all of the rares have that kind of either they are win more, they don't progressively push the board state further when you're behind, like they don't really bring you back into the fold, um, or they're just really cool effects, which is fine. And I, I think they're, they each add something to their, to their faction into the game. Like, Neutron Shark and Skippy Time Hog are absolutely fantastic. The shark will kill itself repeatedly, though. What about you, Nick? Um, I mean, I I kind of agree with exactly what you guys said. That's that's been my experience, at least. Um, that's kind of why I brought up on the buy sell group. You know, I don't I don't go to bat every time I see it pop up and people are boasting that you know their deck has seven rares, so it that's what's justifying this price or that price. But I've I've kind of learned that like a 
the the rare title um, is meaningless for the most part. Um, and I, you know, I'll be the first to admit I haven't sat down and studied the card list. You know, like I said, I'm still discovering cards, so it's possible that we've just seen like the least rare of the rare. And there are some rares out there that are, you know, exceptionally good and kind of directly compete with what we're saying. But for the most part, I, uh, my, my words of advice to somebody, you know, trying to figure out decks and how to buy used or how to value their own decks or whatever, you know, the don't focus on, you know, the, the, the common uncommon rare, uh, at all. I, that's not an indication of whether a deck will be good or bad. And honestly, um, you know, from kind of from what we've talked about, I, I wouldn't actually, you know, I say this kind of tongue in cheek, but those, you know, the more rares in the deck that it might be uh, kind of a downside to it. You know, like you said, they're, they're situational cards largely. And the last thing you want is a deck full of really, really specific individual uh, situational cards that you can't just plop out for your, you know, turn to turn, you know, that, that you're not having to like prepare a bunch for. So yeah, I, I think we're all pretty much in agreement there. Uh, I had a question. Do you guys have any favorite combos? We, we were kind of touching on that, but is there anything that stands out that, and they don't have to, I don't know. I guess you can answer this in one of two ways. Um, if you have these giant grand, you know, once once in a blue moon combos that just totally win you the game, you know, that's cool. But I've got, you know, like I have, I have a little scratch pad here that I just write down notes when I'm playing. You know, this is a, like on here it says, uh, you know, Zookeeper is a cool card. And I, I don't know what that was supposed to mean, but it, it was telling future Nick to go look at that and see what he can do with it. But I also write down any interesting combos that are not not super exciting, you know, not worth writing a blog post about or anything, but are, are handy to keep your eyes peeled for in a deck. Um, do you have any of those that come to mind? Uh, I've got one deck that I specifically went out and bought online. It's the only deck that I've bought online that I've not opened by myself because I really wanted to play this combo. And it is with Zookeeper and the Knowledge is Power rare from Logos. Um, so, and the, the entire idea of the combo is that the Zookeeper, uh, when you reap with him, he allows you just to take an opponent's creature, verbatim, pick it up, and put it directly into your archives. That's it. Nothing mm -hmm. fancy, nothing special. And then the Knowledge is Power. He is a monster. I hate that freaking guy. Unless I have him, in which case I love Especially him. Especially in Mars, where you have, like, John Smith, and you're just like, I'll just do that again. It, it is quite literally the, the Mr. Krabs meme of playing that song again. People hate it. Um, but Knowledge is Power is for, you can either archive a card, which is cool, not a big deal, or for every single card you have in your archives, gain an amber. And it's, it, it's a really fun combo. Uh, the deck wins about 40% of the time. I took it to a tournament. Uh, it was Survival Archon. Or not Survival, sorry, I apologize. It was Adaptive Archon. Um, so it was the, the one where I have to like, give someone else my deck and we just straight off decks. And it won about 40% of the time of that tournament. I won zero times with it during the day. Um, it, it just got crushed every time. But, boy, the, the times I get that combo off and I'm getting, you know, six or seven amber off of their creatures like it's it's just such a good feeling i'm just like yeah i'll take this i appreciate that thank you i'm sure they're just scowling at you from across the table while it's happening oh, as well 100 and they always ask me before they go like hey you want to access your archives because if you access the archives and uh any card of the of the opponents is in archives it immediately goes back to the opponent's hand so they're like you want to access the archives i'm like no nah, i'm good 
No, that that ain't me. <laughs> um, one of the simplest ones that I love dearly and deeply, and practically every Brobnar deck has seems to have access to this one, is just plop down a Brobnar with a play effect and then hit War Drummer and plop him down again. So if you're throwing down, you know, uh, I think it's Smash, the guy with uh, two A, two or three A's in his name who stuns uh, an opponent creature when he comes on the board, mm -hmm. plop him down, stun a creature, pop down War Drummer, stun another creature. Or, you know, um, I forget which guy it is that uh, allows you to... Uh, not, it's not the Gangner Chieftain. He's the ready and fight with a, with a creature. But, uh, you know, you can combo with him and War Drummer for some great effects, um, especially if you've got something out on the board like, you know, uh, War Chest that allows you to really, you know, get, gain Amber for having fought or killed other creatures. Just plopping that War Drummer down and then using it multiple times, especially if you've got more than one play effect uh, Brobnar creature in your hand, it can be so deeply satisfying. It can be a big swing turn, too. Um, similarly, being able to use uh, Compod, which I think I've mentioned in a previous episode, the rare Mars artifact that allows you to reveal cards from your hand, Mars cards from your hand, and then ready Mars creatures. Um, using that with John Smith basically allows you to create crazy turns where, you know, you can put guys into play immediately ready to go and then, you know, over and over and over use them while reaping with John Smith, especially if you have more than one John Smith in a death. It's ridiculous. It's super fun. And it allows you to have sort of these epic turns where you get a ton accomplished without even having to have that many cards. And that's a that's a cool feeling, too. I like those combos a lot. Mm hmm. I have a uh, two two lit uh, written down on my list here, and they're they're not terribly interesting. You know, they're not worth getting a deck that has, but they they kind of made it to my list because I unintentionally play them almost like every game that I play these decks. Um, one of them is Full Moon and Nature's Call. So Full Moon is a uh, it's an action play for the remainder of the turn, gain one amber each time you play a creature. Um, so you can, you know, play creatures, have some on the board, whatever. And then you play Nature's Call. It's an action. They're both untamed. Uh, play, return up to three creatures uh, to their owner's hands. So typically you'd play Nature's Call and, you know, pop your opponent's cards back up into their hands. But play that on your own creatures, pull them back into your hand, uh, play them again, gain some more amber. You know, you can say you have some, say in this hypothetical turn, you have, you know, five untamed cards in your hand. You have Full Moon, you have Nature's Call. And then you have three creatures. You play the you play uh, full moon. Those three creatures, you gain three amber. Pull them back in your hand with nature's call. Play them again. You end that turn with six amber, uh, seven amber because nature's call gives you one. I think that's that's a pretty interesting one and kind of a that's what's cool about Keyforge is I I'm personally discovering little things like that where you know you've got that action play return up to three creatures to their owner's hand uh, and you'd expect that would be a card to play you kind of against to harm your opponent, but that could help you. And I'm sure there's other cases with untamed cards or whatever others, I guess, to prepare for a future turn where pulling your own cards back in your hand could be beneficial. Um, another one I have probably less interesting than that one is bad penny and pawn sacrifice. So pawn sacrifice is a shadows, uh, action that gives you an amber when you play it. And it's sacrifice a friendly creature. If you do deal three damage to two creatures, so you have Bad Penny, um, which has destroyed, returned Bad Penny to your hand. You use Pawn Sacrifice to pull Bad Penny back into your hand. Uh, you use... Here you do that. My phone started ringing, sorry. Um, 
so you've got your uh, your bad penny out on the field. Um, you use pawn sacrifice. Bad penny goes back to your hand, and then you play it again. So you've done three damage to creatures potentially. You can remove two of your opponent's creatures, uh, and then you still end your board state is the same, uh, if not improved upon, because you played bad penny this turn. Um, I, I I just I keep discovering small interactions like that that you might not notice at first glance but have kind of significantly changed the way i look at a deck or just all decks in a whole and i wonder how many more of these i'll discover and i'm excited to learn you know learn more of the cards and be able to spot these things from afar and really be able to you know pilot decks on another level bad penny is like a swiss army knife for a shadows deck like i've found so many uses for bad penny especially the combo that you mentioned that one's fantastic especially if you have a deck that has more than one pawn sacrifice in it or if you've also got you know a deck where you know you've got cards that uh you know uh things like lost in the woods and stuff like that where sometimes you have to get rid of your own creatures um i guess lost in the woods would have her shuffled back in the deck but there's certainly scenarios in which you want to play a card your opponent doesn't have a creature that it would be applicable to on the board and bad penny can be your sacrifice sacrifice and it doesn't matter because she just heads right back to your hand which is awesome um especially too if you can get like something like speed sigil out on the board where you can put out something like bad penny they get to go and reap for you right away hit a pawn sacrifice get an amber or you know whatever else out of it man i, I just love that card she's great I think every Shadows deck should have a bad penny or two. Man, if we're if we're going to be talking about Perfect World decks, what I would love to see is a combo. And this is because combos that interact with different factions are, like, what is my bread and butter. Like, I love when the, the, the factions can interact with each other. Auto Cannon. It's an artifact, comes into play, deal one damage to every creature immediately as it enters in play. Like, okay, that's it's a damage. It's nothing too great, too nothing, nothing too wild. And then save the pack from Untamed, where it does destroy each damaged creature gain a chain. Like it, it, it's something really simple. It, it mean I think Auto Cannon is a rare if I remember correctly, and save the pack is a common, and I have to have Brobnar and Untamed in the deck. But oh man, like just just having that instant kill button at the ready at all times, where like save the pack is a little situational. I mean, it's it's pretty easy to damage every creature on the board but the fact that you can just do it automatically like real fun i was curious what you guys think uh are all houses created equal i think the answer is no um i think that untamed and shadows win uh more often than other houses in decks that are well balanced in those factions that's personal observation. I don't have any data to back that up. So please, you know, folks, comment if you if you have a, a differing opinion on that. Um, I think that some houses, and of course, this is always going to be dependent on the deck. You know, there are killer Brobnar-focused decks out there. There are killer Sanctum-focused decks out there. But I do genuinely feel like when I oftentimes am get totally stomped, totally skunked, don't even get a single key forged while the other person has marched to victory. Often it's because they have a strong shadows deck and those are the hardest ones to have a response to, or, you know, an Amber rush deck based around untamed. I've run into so many of them in the wild, just playing against people on the crucible, playing against people in that local stores. Um, you know, they, they, they just, I don't know if it's necessarily that they're stronger, but maybe it's just that the pieces to make them 
a more winning house inside of a well-balanced deck are more common or the algorithm, you know, it, uh, makes them come up in people's decks more frequently. I think with the current state of things, I would put money on on Untamed and Shadows being the strongest houses from a winning perspective. Um, and of course, you know, once we start to have real win-loss tracking, theoretically, at some point with the app, these are things that we're going to be able to test, hopefully, really start to see what the percentage of winning houses and decks are. But that's purely supposition on my part at this point, but I feel like it's supposition supported by personal experience in the, you know, couple hundred games I've played of Keyforge at this point. Alex, I like you. You're a good friend. You're wrong. Whole, wholeheartedly oh. super wrong. All right. All right. I okay. want to hear this. I think that every single faction, or I keep calling them factions, they're houses. I got to call it the, the right terms. But I think every single house in this game is built equally amongst themselves. And what I mean that is that every house has something that they really specialize in, that they're really good at, a couple things that they're okay at, and a couple things they're real bad at. And because of that, I think that you're seeing more combos with your saying that like Shadows is winning all the time. I definitely think Shadows is one of the stronger ones. I actually think Shadows, Brobnar, and Dis are the three to watch. And that makes me sad as a Mar as somebody who likes Mars Logos Untamed. Um, but I think that every single house is done up exceptionally well in that they all have a very good feel to them and they're balanced around that feel. Um, like Brobnar, real good at creatures, real good at fighting. They're okay about, you know destroying extra amber with like burn the stockpiles they're okay at gaining amber situationally with like blood money and um uh war chest what's the one that lets you what's the, the action that lets you uh every time you fight you gain amber i'm forgetting it's not loot the bodies but um no loot the bodies when you destroy the creature um but yeah, the the same thing. Like they they have real good ways of getting of amber control, both gaining and losing amber. Uh, you go down to Dis. Dis is all about the destruction. Like they they love going through your hand, destroying the three most powerful cards on the field. Uh, Annihilation ritual is probably pound for pound the strongest card in the game. Um, again, situational. It's a rare, but it. When a creature would enter the, a discard pile, it's removed or it's purged from instead. So strong. Um, it's got a bit of more of the, a little bit of amber control, um, less gaining amber. I think um, the pit demon can steal an amber, um, but it's more about just either destroying the amber or taking the amber, and less about gaining amber on its own. Uh, you have Logos, which is all about card draw, and no one plays with the archive better than better than Logos. And then you got some really cool random effects that are, are in there, like Wild Wormhole, Neutron Shark. Like every single faction is designed in a way that the the factions have a very obvious flaw. And in the case of Mars, it's kind of a big flaw because Mars cards all combo with each other, but they also combo with each other, which is a huge strength when you're able to get those things. And I think that, and like I said before, comboing between factions, I think that is what makes it so that the the game is balanced. And I'm going to say there, there's definitely a few problem cards, like library access and being able to recur library access a couple times. That's that's a problem. 
it's not ridiculous, but like it exists. Um, there's a few other like weird like edge case scenarios where you have two or three cards like um, oh, what's the discard that Restingus, I believe it's called. Um, I've been calling it Restring Guntus, so something like that. Yeah, like you can lock somebody out. I'm sure I'm pronouncing it wrong. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's like a Restringus and a Dominator Bobble with a Witch of the Wilds out. And, you know, like, all, all these things have to be, you know, come down and actually work. Um, but then you have control of the week, and your turn is call this, call the wearer house that Resingus has locked out. Then use your Dominator Bobble on the witch to bring back control of the week for next turn. And yay, you win. Like, that, that's a problem. Um, have, but again, there's like four or five. There's at least two turns where you need to set that up. And there's there's ways of dealing with it, but other than that, like I I definitely think that all of the houses are. If you played a game with the house, just one house against one house, twelve cards, I. Out in the average, because I'm gonna I'm not gonna say deck building, so you're gonna have you know a random assortment of those cards. On the average, I think they'll they'll be around the sixty forty win rate. Which is as best as you're going to get. I don't think the game's going to have a true 50-50 in this weird, awkward scenario that I've, you know, created. But I, I think that playing a 12-card deck of only one house versus a 12-card deck of only one house, I want to say that they are going to be even most of the time. And So how do you, how do you respond to like the majority community consensus being that Mars is the least desirable house. I'm a Mars player. I, I will happily take those houses and I will like, I, I can see why it's the least desirable because when it doesn't work, it's real bad. Like Mars has some blatant weaknesses. Most of their creatures are weak. Um, I can only think of, I can think of three or four. I think I want to say four that are above um, three power. And those ones come out stunned. Yes, yep. Right. And, uh well no, the um the Chuffate no yeah, the Chuffate comes out stunned. The Etherspire deals no damage. Um Gromid. Gromid doesn't come in stunned. You just can't play other creatures. Like <laughs> as long as he's in play, you can't play other creatures. I mean I it doesn't seem like you're you're doing your not, case any favors nope, right I'm now. Not, not with Mars. No. But the, the, the trick is is that like <laughs> again, but Mars's strength is that they combo with each other. Every single card in Mars is really there to help Mars. Um, and then you have a couple cards that make other creatures Mars, like Brainstem Antenna. Um, you got Red Planet Raygun that you just put on any creature you want, and you're like, all right, you need you now have to deal with my Mars creatures, even if I don't call Mars every turn, because I have this creature that I can just reap and deal a damage for every Mars creature I have in play. Like... It, there are cards in there that really cause a lot of problems. Um, I'm trying to think of the more common ones because I don't want to. I don't want to always be using rares and uncommons, but like phosphorus stars, I will throw away every single time. That's the only bad card I can think of off the top of my head that's in Mars because it's play stun each non-Mars creature. That's uh, that's usually two thirds of your deck. And maybe two thirds of their deck. That's not a uh, fun time. 
I'm also going to put Ammonia Clouds out there as a Mars card that I find very situational. And I'm with you, man. We should form, like, the, the Mars fan club for Keyforge. I'll be the treasurer. You can be the president. I don't um, want you touching my money. No way, no. <laughs> You're a wise man. Um, <laughs> but, you know, uh, uh, Ammonia Clouds basically does three damage to every uh, card on the field, which is not enough to take out your opponent's big cards, but it is enough to take out all of your good low-power Mars cards. So it's, it's yeah, it's it's almost getting tossed practically every time that it comes into the hand, unless I'm in a very specific kind of situation. Yeah, there's, like, I, I, I can understand why if you look at a Mars card and go, why would I ever play this? You're probably right. In a vacuum, why would I ever play this? But the fact, like, EMP Blast, each Mars creature and each robot is stunned. Each artifact is destroyed. You're hitting your own creatures a lot of the time with Mars. It's it's a very combo heavy. It's very reckless. But man, when you can get those Mars combos to work, like you are you are in such a good position that you just like fold your hand up, put on, put it face down and next to your deck and go, I will call Mars until you deal with this problem. Nick, what do you feel like if there is a strongest house, the strongest house is, or do you think that all the houses are equal like Steven? Uh, so I definitely don't think all the houses are equal. Um, and I haven't been able to figure out what the strongest house is. Um, and I, I guess someone, someone will try to correct this whole conversation and say, well, what constitutes being the strongest, you know, physically strongest. Cause you probably have Brabnar this and that. Um, but just kind of in general, all things considered, you know, the best house to help you win the game. Um, from my experience and just with my decks, I would say sanctum. Like every time I, I notice I have like an overwhelming board state and I'm doing very well, I look down at the board and I analyze it and it's due to my sanctum. And that's been the case across like, I don't know how many decks, but more decks than not. You know, it's it's not just like every once in a while that pops up. It's like almost every time when I'm noticing during a game like, wow, this is going very well. Why is that? It's because I've got sanctum out there. Um, I can see the value in others. Um, you know, I... My, my personal two favorite houses for the reason, you know, kind of that we're talking about that I think they're the most beneficial to have would be Sanctum and Shadows. And, uh, you know, whatever else gets thrown into that deck is okay with me. Either Logos or Dis I would pick. Um, you know, there's there's Dis, which it's it's valuable, but I don't think it's the, it's the game-winning house. Um, I think that's either Shadows or Sanctum, personally. I could be wrong, and my opinion might change as I learn to pilot my other decks better. I, I'm sure it'll change, but you know, from what I've seen, it's just you know, my my personal experience has been slapping me in the face with it. Is that Sanctum is what has like saved my butt over and over and over again. Just and it's I think it's because Sanctum has a little bit of everything you might need. Um, you know, a lot of cards are really specific to you know, Brobnar is really just about kind of beating down, and Shadows is really about you know, amber manipulation and stuff. And it seems like sanctum brings a little bit of everything to the table and maybe that's why it's because i'm able to just reliably pick sanctum the majority of my turns and i'm not having to like oh boy you know i really need to swap to dis so i can you know do this or that or i really need to use shadows so i can you know disrupt what he's doing it's for the most part i can find something within my sanctum you know cards that will will solve most problems i have in a game uh so far and maybe i'm just lucky with my decks that's that's also possible this is one of those things where I, I cannot wait until theoretically we get a point where we can really start crunching the numbers on wins and losses. Um, 
hopefully that's information that we'll be able to pull out of the the, the KeyForge app via the API or something else like that uh, in order to really start looking at what the most winningest decks have in common, what houses are represented more than any others, what commons, rares, uncommons, uniques are most represented. Because right now, I think so much of our conversations around this, and they're good conversations and I like having them, are really governed by personal experience. And so oftentimes, like my perception of Sanctum and your perception of Sanctum simply don't match up because our experiences are so totally different. And that's based on the kind of decks that we've pulled and the kind of decks that we've played against. And to be totally truthful, that's one of the things that I genuinely, once again, love about Keyforge. It's not all set in stone. The meta is not universal. We're still figuring all this stuff out. And so, you know, and once we get all this stuff figured out, there is nothing nothing in the world to stop them from adding a new set changing the algorithm doing something else to return us to this state so on the one hand we're all constantly in a state of discovery and really figuring out you know what the game is and how the game is played and what's feasible and what's not feasible and what's fun while at the same time also knowing that you know there's there's the impending specter of uh, you know everything we've learned possibly being changed in future and that's kind of a fun state for the game to be in the age of discovery is well named because i i feel like the age of discovery is going to last for a good long while i definitely 100 percent agree with you on that but i i also feel like that once the decks are going to be more found out and we start looking at more of the data I think you're going to see more of a shift in not the algorithm itself, but the players themselves. And you're going to see them because players want to win. That's just who we are. We we want to be competitive. We want to win. And you're going to see when that data comes out, you're going to have a big shift in, well, this three combo is, th these three houses are, are winning, you know, 60% of the, of the games. Is that because of piloting is that because of cards is that because like all these little factors that can can play in and everyone's local meta is 100 percent different and i and definitely i think that's why speaking with these personal experiences is good because i am sure every single listener to the the podcast is in a different meta and a different state than the three of us and i think each one of the three of us is in a very different state of each other uh mm -hmm. my my meta is very, very hard pushed on. Does this have bait and switch? It wins. Um, like it, to the point where the tournament that I went to on Saturday, every the person who won the tournament played against a shadows deck every single round. Um, mine had one bait and switch and no other like cool stuff. Um, it had a couple urchin like pullbacks and stuff like that. But, it, like, everyone there apparently brought a Shadows deck. And I don't know if it was because of the meta, because we wanted to try something. I I brought a Shadows deck because I don't play Shadows very often, and I wanted to try something different. And it was survival format, so I had a second deck in the background, which is my deck that I, you know, is my bread and butter. Uh, but I think that once the data comes out, I really... Don't hope that everyone starts falling over the decks that are like the houses that are going crazy. And that's because we can't build the deck. And that I think is the the best decision that Keyforge has made in that even if your house is doing super exceptionally well, you know, and 
I'll, I'll throw out this random perfect world scenario. Shadows wins 80% of the time. Whatever, it doesn't matter. Shadows is great. It's the best deck around. Your deck might still be in that 20th percentile where you're never going to win a game just because of the cards you pull. And that's good and bad. Like, it, it sucks if you pull that bad of a deck. But at the same time, it means your other cards might be better. It means you might need to pile out the deck better to get into that 80% win ratio where Shadows is winning all the time. Like, and I agree. I think that the Age of Discovery is aptly named because everyone is still trying to figure all of these little nuances out between the game. I see what you're saying. I think there's going to be two two periods of time, two phases in how this is all going to work out. Right now, we're in kind of the first phase of figuring things out. Um, as as we gain, we're like a, a new society. Like as as we gain knowledge, we get more powerful and. You know, we were all moving toward the single goal of figuring out like what is, you know, what is the best combination of cards? What's the best house? What's the best house combination? Whatever, all that stuff. And with that data coming out, um, you know, I think we're going to play a couple months. That data is going to become available however it is, whether it's crowdsourced, fan sourced, whatever, or comes officially from the site. Um, we're going to figure all that out. And then what's going to happen is there's going to be like, I call like an objective meta discovered it's just going to be you know something that like isn't really common in other card games you know because all the card choices are so unique you can have like a this is what you know the consensus is that people are kind of playing right now but like this will be backed by like hard data um but once that like objective meta is discovered there's no way around it everyone's going to flock to it everyone's going to go for those house combinations everyone's going to go for those card combos whatever it is but that's also going to introduce like an objective-ish uh, like counter meta. And with that, we're going to be in this phase two of like that meta has been established, but now there's a whole army of people that have reevaluated their play style not to play into the meta, but to combat the meta. And that's going to disrupt that objective meta that we've discovered and... You know, it'll be interesting to see what happens at the end of that like second phase. And I'm not sure if that's exactly how it'll play out, but I have a pretty good hunch that it is. Um, and I think that'll be cool to see. So I don't think the game will be ruined by any means. And it's it's going to be kind of like a like a refresh, like almost, you know, like they wipe the board clean because for what what we figured out is good in phase one, you know, is going to be totally disrupted when everybody comes to the table with their, you know, shadows, whatever, whatever. Um but then there's going to be the introduction of that counter meta that's going to disrupt all of that and potentially knock that down once you know everyone's playing the cards that combat that meta that's been discovered, if that makes sense. It definitely does make sense. Um, your point about people chasing what will be seen as the, the most winningest kinds of decks or the most winningest combos is well made um, because I think we're already starting to see to a degree um, people chasing after decks that are perceived as having, you know, a, a real high win ratio. I mean, we've had the conversation about horsemen a couple of times, I think, on this podcast. And ultimately, you know, those of us who are sitting here understand that horsemen is not a guarantee of anything. Horsemen is cool. Horseman works really well in the right scenario. Horseman is fun to have because it's an interesting piece of early Keyforge culture. Having a Horseman deck is like fun and it feels good to have in your collection. 
but the fact that people are going out there willing to pay, you know, top dollar for double horsemen and, you know, much higher than average for regular horseman decks, I think already indicates the fact that people are perhaps chasing a thing that has a perception of being a winning deck. Well, at the same time, we don't actually necessarily have any real data to back that up other than people's personal observation at this point. I could be wrong. People could be buying them just because they want a horseman deck because it's cool to have a horseman deck, as I mentioned. But, uh, you know, I, I think that within the next couple of months, we're going to see some other combination really start to heat up in the uh, the secondary market sales because it's perceived as being a key to victory, if you will. Um have either of you guys seen any, you know, anything heating up on the library access Nepenthe seed combo the draw your entire hand in one turn if you can get it off combo? I've seen it mentioned, sure. I'm wondering if that's going to be the one that starts to go up in price, like if people really start to chase after it and it starts commanding top dollar on 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 the secondary. Market. Oh, I'm, I'm pretty sure it already is like it, it's such a strong combo mm -hmm. that like, again, it takes a couple turns to, to fire and it can be disrupted by the opponent, but. Side question. So yeah, go for it. Um, what would a Keyforge deck have to have for you to pay a good amount of money for it? Let's let's set this at fifty dollars. What would a deck have to have in it for you to want to spend fifty dollars in it? And is there a deck out there, theoretically, or the one that you're even aware of that you would pay fifty dollars for? Uh, I have a really boring answer to that. Um, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't buy a deck, not because I'm some elitist that insists on just cracking my own decks open and doesn't believe in the secondary market, but because I, I hope my words don't carry any weight and I'm sure they don't, but I would hate to be responsible for just like disrupting the third party market or whatever. But like, I don't think anyone knows enough to justify spending actual like significant money on a deck unless you're doing it just for fun or like you said like there was a combo in the deck that you really wanted to play like that's fine but like to go out you know the people that are spending 200 bucks 300 bucks on a deck like it's it's unjustified i guess like there's you i don't think you could convince me especially not you know like i don't know it might be a cop out just because i don't know enough about keyforge like i'm just i'm not good at like you know, uh, like discovering mid, like looking at a card list, being able to recognize uh, combos or meta or anything like that. But I just, I personally don't think there's any any set of cards that are that combined would justify like a, a significant price tag yet. That may change as I as I, you know, I don't know. It may change as I learn more cards. But if if it does change, I'm going to have such a strict list of cards that the deck needs to contain that I probably won't be able to find it. You know, I, I would want to dictate, you know, six of each of those 12 cards in each house. You know, I'd have to, that that deck would have to be 18 cards perfect, um, which might be possible. It might be, you know, easier than I think. Um, I don't know. That's that's just my opinion, is that I, I don't think there's anything, any combination of cards that would, would pop up actually, like in the wild, that would be worth me hunting down and trying to pay a significant amount of money for. You know, my, like I... My best deck that I have, I, I wouldn't be able to spot that in the wild. Like looking at that card list, I've done it. You know, looking at that card list, there's nothing about it that stands out that's, that makes me say, ah, yes, this will be perfect. But, you know, lo and behold, like it's just the, it's my consistent winner. Like it, since I've started marking my, my spreadsheet, it hasn't lost once. So, 
you know, I don't know. I wouldn't have been able to spot that in the wild, but that's just me. Maybe you guys have a, a less boring answer. Um, I don't really have like a solid answer for that, but definitely I would go for things that have really neat combos or that play with the game in a very different way than normal. Um, I think that might be why I'm so attracted to like the Logos Mars combination, um, because they play the game very differently. Logos has access to the archives and does some crazy archive shenanigans. Mars has some archive shenanigans, but they really build around like the combos. And I always forget if it's like Timmy or Johnny from Magic, the one that like in the perfect world, like this is an art form and I can bit this combo off if everything fires exactly right. I'm one of those kind of players. Like I, I like being creative and I like doing things outside of the the ideal. So, I mean, the deck that I bought that has the Zookeeper and the Knowledge's Power, I paid 12 bucks for. I found it on a site, I stumbled upon it randomly, and was just like, I, I saw the combo, and I'm like, yeah, I want this, this seems like fun to me. Um, so, I mean, I, I paid a $2 premium for a deck that is probably, honestly, subpar. It wins about 40% of the time that I feel like. Uh, I mean, again, I'm not tracking my wins and losses, so that, that number might be skewed. But it, it's a fun combo, and I enjoy playing it. Um, but like things that are really able to like abuse the archives that not a lot of play, not a lot of the other factions have. Um, some crazy shenanigans that are, I'm able to do with Mars with some combat pheromones and uh, Mega Mouth and Agent Smith, like that. Those decks seem fun to me. Those like. I guess you'd call it poetry in motion kind of decks. I, if I saw one like that, I'd spend 50 bucks on it. I'd, begrudgingly. I would not, you know... I, I'd look after the fact when I got my credit card bill and be like, oh, what did I do? Oh, this was a mistake. <laughs> but then I'll get the deck and I'll play it and I'll have fun. I'll be like, alright, you know, I, I'm investing $50, which is the same cost as a video game, into something that I enjoy. Like, alright, you know... If you get if you find a uh, find a deck with like bear flute and like eleven ancient bears, like I'd buy that. It would not be fifty dollars because that deck would be insane. But like something like just silly combos like that that are just so either ridiculous or just fun to play or that change how the game works from like if I can change the game, say like every every keyforge game is checkers or chess. And I bring a deck that I, you know, can play a couple cards and go, we're playing cribbage now. And you're like, what's cribbage? And I'm like, it's a card game. And you're like, this is chess. And I'm like, I know. Like, those are the kinds of decks that I would be willing to spend some crazy money on. I would be willing to spend money on a particular deck that I know exists. Because um, initially when I heard that people were really like hunting for decks that had their name in them, I was like, oh, whatever, that doesn't matter to me at all. Like, it's cool if you can get one. It must be nice to have one in your collection, but it's not going to break my heart if it never comes to pass for me. And then I found out there is one that has both my first name and my last name in it, and now I am obsessed with owning it, and it is terrible. It is, it is a uh, Logos Sanctum Shadows deck that has uh, three Nexuses and no other shadow creatures in it. Um... Yeah, it's just it's not even good, but just the pure appeal of having a Keyforge deck with both my first name and my last name in the deck name, 
I, I, I want it so badly. So if you are the owner of Alexa devil burden, Kennedy convict, uh, you know, holler at your boy, uh, I, I'll make you an offer for it. But, uh, those are the things that I think would almost be worth spending money on is getting a name that has some personal resonance with you. Um, I'm not normally a big fan of like name talk, uh, around the game. It's fun when you see a funny name, but that amusement lasts for about three seconds and then it's kind of over. But that's the one where I'm like, man, I want that just so that I could say that I have a Keyforge deck that has my first and last name in it. I, I'm pretty sure the council is playing with yourself and I don't want to see that at any Keyforge table. You, you keep that deck at home. Like, oh, that ain't me. Yeah. That's an interesting point. I've, I've looked it up and I haven't seen, uh, you know, anything that shares my my last name definitely um see now so, i have to look so <laughs> i'm looking right, right now <laughs> yeah some with my first but none with my last um but you know like like you said just kind of a an interesting novelty um not something i'm i'd be super heartbroken about but something pretty cool um it looks like that's all the time we've got today uh thanks everyone for tuning in a couple parting notes uh like i said at the beginning of the episode don't forget to check out the forum on thekeyforge.com slash forums, or you can just go to the website, thekeyforge.com, click the forums link. Uh, it just opened up. It's brand spanking new. It's very quiet, very empty. Um, be the change you want to see in the forum. You know, Make a post, scream into the void, and I promise you somebody will scream I'll make an account right now. Um, the forum was up. <laughs> there you go. That's right. Uh, if you enjoyed the show uh, and what we do at thekeyforge.com, you can check out our new Patreon at patreon.com slash the keyforge again thank you to the same to the few people who have uh, already pledged you know whether it be one dollar two dollars five dollars a thousand dollars whatever you want to pledge that'd be awesome Uh, it really gives us something to kind of quantify you know and just just it 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 gives us something tangible to say that like this is how much people enjoy what we're doing we should really keep at it um thank you guys so much for listening uh Make sure to check us out wherever wherever you find podcasts, YouTube, uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all that good stuff. And we will see you next week.